This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Monday. It's another week. Thanks for being here. Hello. Uh, oh my goodness. I have been talking all day. Yeah, because you filled in for AJ on the morning show today. Yeah, AJ's out sick. It's not COVID, but I think it's an ear ache or infection or something. So yeah, they asked me to fill in and it was so wonderful. One, seeing Michaela. Two, mm-hmm. being back in the studio. Um, and yeah, I don't know, causing havoc in the morning. It was pretty Look nice. You. Well, I'm happy that you were able to do it and be with me today. Going nonstop, Ryan Mitchell, 2021. I mean, I like the sound of that. I do like the sound of that. Okay. Well, let's get into uh, what's happening on this show today. Coming up, details on California's reopening plans. We woke up to to this today, and it's good. It feels optimistic. We're going to give you details on what that all means later in the show. And more on a current health crisis that you might not know about, and that's therapist burnout. It is real, and we're going to be talking more about that as well. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki announced the Treasury Department is resuming an Obama-era effort to put Harriet Tubman on the new $20 bill. The Treasury Department is taking steps to resume efforts to put Harriet Tubman on the front of the new $20 notes. Uh, It's important uh, that our notes, our, our money, uh, people don't know what a note is, uh, reflect the history and diversity of our country. And Harriet Tubman's image gracing the new $20 note would certainly reflect that. So we're exploring ways to speed up that effort. So there you go. Already some big things happening. I feel like every day we have a new positive announcement, which feels good. Now, another positive announcement. This is almost like an early Yaz queen. President Joe Biden overturned a controversial ban by the Trump administration on transgender individuals serving in the U.S. military. It's a move that fulfills also a campaign promise of his. And this comes out from the White House in a statement. They said, President Biden believes that gender identity should not be a bar to military service and that America's strength is found in its diversity. Allowing all qualified Americans to serve their country in uniform is better for the military and better for the country because an inclusive force is more effective. Former Democratic President Barack Obama in 2016 did allow trans people to serve openly and receive medical care to transition genders, but Trump froze their recruitment while allowing serving personnel to remain. 
Now, uh, while Biden looks towards pushing for his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, there's already some pushback from Republicans and even Democrats. He shared his thoughts on the importance of unity in Congress around these critical and timely bills. If, if you pass a piece of legislation that breaks down on party lines, but it gets passed, it doesn't mean there wasn't unity. It just means it wasn't bipartisan. I prefer these things to be bipartisan because I'm trying to generate some consensus and take sort of the, uh, how can I say it, the vitriol out of all of this. And reports are coming out that they won't be able to pass anything really until at least March, including with uh, this conflict between both parties, it seems, around this. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So there is a new trend slash prank that had dozens of police surrounding JoJo Siwa's home hours after she came out online. It is time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So in a video posted on Instagram, JoJo Siwa claimed that a member of the paparazzi was behind the call to the police that they wanted her to leave her house so that they could take photos of her. And this term is called swatting. Here, JoJo Siwa is talking about that the super scary moment. Where the media will actually call the police she did. Um, the media is obviously very excited, which I love, and I love the support. However, you know, it you could have just hung out outside my house, and I would have would have eventually came outside. Eventually came outside, but I think it's really sad that, like, for for me, it was no big deal to walk outside my house. Like, it's I'm I'm okay. But I feel bad because there was about fifty police at our house, and those police could have had much better time spent somewhere else, you know, actually helping somebody instead of dealing with a fake claim from paparazzi, you know, it's. So yes, swatting. Have you ever heard of swatting? Mm, no, no. Yeah, swatting is wild. You know, she, uh, JoJo basically did not name any of the members who allegedly made the call. The call was placed just after she was discussing her coming out on Instagram, and the call to police could have, like, literally come from anywhere. But, yeah, it's, swatting is basically when someone calls and has... Uh, it makes up a, this entire lie and calls to make sure the police, the fire department, and the SWAT team come storm your house so you have to come outside of your house and so paparazzi can be nearby to get double the drama. It's so gross that they would do that right after her coming out, right? Yeah, that because they wanted to get a moment because mm -hmm. I guess she's been staying inside a lot because of that, you know, how much that photo would cost. Uh, but also, hopefully, that person who did that will be charged. Because well, yeah. Using taxpayer dollars and, you know, money to get all those people there. That should be illegal. And no one knows. Like, no one knows who it is. And also... I just think it's so gross that, you know, JoJo told us something and gave, you know, the entire world a piece of her in a very vulnerable way. And the what like the the things that we'll go to to get a photo or whatever to get that moment is just Lucid. really gross. Yeah, we don't deserve it. So, yeah, that's your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. Okay, well, how is this impeachment going to be different than Trump's last? Chief Correspondent Dan Baltz from The Washington Post joins us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. 
Democrats in Congress are moving forward with preparations for the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, saying there is a compelling case for Trump to be convicted of inciting an insurrection. Meanwhile, the GOP seem to continue to be divided on this. And joining us right now is the chief correspondent for The Washington Post, Dan Boltz. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So the second impeachment trial will start February 9th. What can we expect and how will this be different? I suspect it will be shorter than the first trial. And um, beyond that, we don't know quite yet how it's going to play out. The, the Democratic managers are continuing to prepare their case. Um, but I think we know the fundamentals of the case, which are in the article of impeachment. I mean, unlike the first impeachment trial, um, the evidence that they will present has been seen by people. Uh, people witnessed exactly what happened. Um, and the people who are sitting as jurors in this uh, were in the middle of it on that, uh, on that day in, in January, January 6th. Um, and the other is that uh, one of the elements of the uh, article has to do with the conversation that the former president had with the Secretary of State of Georgia trying to get him to falsify the results in Georgia. Uh, and uh, the Washington Post obtained an audio of that and put it on its website. And so all of that, you can hear Trump's speaking. So in, in, in ways that are far different from what happened during the, uh, the first impeachment, which had to do with his phone call to the uh, Ukrainian president, uh, this evidence is well known and well documented and visible to people. So, but I think before we get to that point, there's going to be a debate about whether it's constitutional to, in fact, have a trial for somebody who is out of office. And that, that will be the first hurdle to get over. And um, I suspect that we'll get over that, but that will be the first hurdle. You know, there are some Republicans who really signed up and are riding the Trump train still. So how are they going to, with all of this evidence that everyone can see, how are they really going to defend him in a moment like this? How, how, how are the GOP going to kind of represent him in some way? Well, I suspect two things. One is that um, they will argue that he should not be able to be uh, impeached or convicted because he's out of office. That's the first. And even if the trial goes ahead, I think some of those who are ardent Trump supporters will continue to use that argument. Uh, but I think the second is some of the things we saw in the impeachment debate in the House, um, what, 10 days ago, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, um, in which people were basically saying, well, look at what he said. And they were selectively taking things from what the president said on that uh, on the day of the rally ahead of the attack on the Capitol uh, as evidence that he was calling for a peaceful demonstration, that he was not calling for them to ransack the Capitol. Um, so they will, they will look to those kinds of things. Um, we know that there are a lot of Republicans who are not prepared to vote for a conviction at this point, and they will find find ways to make that argument on his behalf. Again, we're talking to Dan Baltz, who's the chief correspondent at the Washington Post. Now, yeah, you're mentioning the Republicans like Mitt Romney spoke out against Trump and now seems to be moving back on an impeachment instead pushing for unity. We're also seeing this from the RNC. Uh, so are we going to be seeing a lot of people flip flopping here and not holding uh, someone like Trump accountable for these actions? Well, some certainly will uh, decide they don't want to do it. I mean, the, the, we heard that argument in the House from some Republicans, including uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House minority leader, basically saying you should not go ahead with impeachment because it would only divide, further divide a divided country. 
Um, but there's also a compelling argument from the other side, which is that people need to be held accountable for their actions, and, and that will be the, the push that people have. Um, you know, Senator Romney voted, he was the only Republican who voted to convict Trump in the first trial. He, he holds no brief for Trump, and I, 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 have, I don't know how he will vote on this, but uh, given his track record, he's not unwilling to vote to convict Trump when he feels that the president has done something egregious. So um, I, I think more important will be what uh, Mitch McConnell, the now Senate minority leader, chooses to do. He's made it clear he is open to listening to the evidence. Uh, he's made it clear that he's had it with uh, former President Trump. Um, we don't know whether that means he's prepared to go as far as voting for uh, a conviction. If he were to do that, and if he were to you know, rally some of the people in his own caucus, um, then the question is, could the, could the 17 Republicans that are needed to go along with all the Democrats who are likely to could vote for conviction, would that get you to the two-thirds vote you needed? Um, we're a ways away from that. We'll have to see how the, the trial plays out. Um, but obviously, everybody's watching Senator McConnell to, to get a better sense of exactly where he's going to come down. This isn't impeachment related, but I do want to know about this Patriot Party that Donald Trump kind of briefly floated. Is this something that we could actually see start and compete with the GOP? Possibly. Um, I think we have to get through impeachment before we have a better sense of what the president or the former president uh, <laughs> is likely to do. Um, he obviously wants to maintain his influence, but I think that there are a lot of Republicans who will try to do everything they can uh, to keep the, the two parts of the Republican Party together, the Trump wing of the party and the non-Trump wing of the party. Uh, so um, I think we're a ways away from knowing whether there's a, a part, patriot party in our future. That was Dan Baltz, chief correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Now, Biden is taking out a highly controversial word from immigration laws. We discuss what that is and its impact next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As part of an immigration reform bill, President Joe Biden has proposed removing the term alien from U.S. immigration laws and replacing it with the word non-citizen. And joining us right now for the story is Nicole Acevedo, who's a reporter for NBC News Digital. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So why is this such an important move and something that many people have been obviously wanting this because it is so dehumanizing to use the word alien? I mean, it's it's something that a lot of immigrant rights advocates have been calling for for many years, even before Trump. But I think what we've seen in the past four years is how, you know, the, the fact that President Trump won with a campaign that was so anti-immigrant and then doubling down on the use of, of words like alien and illegal alien during his presidency when there are other terms that convey the same meaning, but without the dehumanizing part of it, right? So, you know, with an incoming new administration that is trying to establish itself as something completely different that, than what we'd had the past four years, that seems like a really important move just to mark, you know, that, that this is an administration that's willing to be humane towards immigrants in this country. Just starting with the uh, the alien change uh, the is, is such a great thought and start. Um, but tell us a little bit more what's happening in the immigration reform bill, because there is a lot to kind of unpack there. But I think it's so incredible what Joe Biden is seeking to do. It's a bill that has a lot of moving parts. 
in between those, it's providing an eight-year path to citizenship to people that may not have citizenship in this country, trying to regularize um, DACA, the DACA program, and provide those young immigrants with a path towards citizenship in the long run, and as well as other folks that have temporary protected status and other other ways of, of remaining in this country legally, right? So that was one of the big um, sort of the big news item from that bill, because especially when he was vice president, that was something that sort of fell through in negotiations in Congress when, when Obama was president. The fact that they never were able to get immigration reform. And this time around, he ran on a promise that he would bring immigration reform forward in the first 100 days of his, of his presidency. And that bill was sort of, you know, living up to that promise that he did throughout his campaign, really. Definitely. Again, you're hearing from Nicole Acevedo, who's a reporter for NBC News Digital, of course, producing stories for NBC Latino and NBCNews.com. Now, what, what a sigh of relief this is for so many immigrants. You've been covering this. What have you been hearing? That, exactly that, a sigh of relief. I mean, to be honest, a sigh of relief sort of came with since November. You know, um, I remember I was covering um, the, the election and it was on a Saturday. And when the last votes came in that, that basically gave all the electoral college votes to Biden, I live in New York City and I heard people screaming and I heard people banging pots and celebrating. And I think it was sort of that sigh of relief that, you know, in San Francisco cities like in New York, where there's a lot of immigrants, you know, it's, it's almost like, okay, I, I don't have to be as afraid anymore because, it, it, you know, it's, it's almost like what we've seen this past four years is it's really doubling down on immigrants under the Trump administration. We, we cannot forget that immigrants that were not a priority for, for deportation, for example, became a priority. And, and that's why we've heard, for instance, a lot of backlog in immigration courts. Right now under Biden, there's 1.3 million deportation cases on backlog. And mainly it's because of that, like people that were never a priority because they didn't have a, a big criminal record or anything like that became a priority because under the Trump administration, just coming into this country was, was a crime and they were getting them round up. So, so really the sigh of relief has come from, from then. And now um, it's, it's, there's a sentiment of people being vigilant that Biden continues to deliver on those promises. I'm presenting this bill now you know, it's a step in the right direction, but I think yeah. that that sense of vigilance will remain until, you know, the bill passes. I, I just want to know, I, I'm happy that we all have this collective sigh of relief, but the idea that this is just going to kind of change how people identify immigrants in this country when everything is so in, in embedded, the racism is kind of in the root of who this country is, unfortunately. Is there more that needs to be done, right? How do we continue to humanize a group of people um, knowing that just because a bill happens doesn't necessarily mean that's the, the automatic switch? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think that, you know, almost by being an example, it's a good start. Like, okay, if our lawmakers and if our laws can be humane, the hope is that it would trickle down to, to the population. But no, I think that 
in the way we we talk to each other too, even in our homes and and in in the interactions that we have in our daily lives. You know, sitting down and being able to acknowledge one's biases and one, you know a lot of preconceived notions that we may have of people that are different from us. I think it's a good start. And yeah. you don't need to wait for any law or any politician to tell you to do that. I think that's something that all of us individually can do um, in our own time. That was Nicole Acevedo, reporter for NBC News Digital. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, do young people need to get vaccinated soon? Well, we've got that answer next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. According to a report for the Los Angeles Times, young, mostly whites, they're calling, quote, vaccine chasers. They're forming these unofficial lines outside of local clinics and community centers to receive a dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine that is decreasing. You know, there's not enough, as we all know. And the priority is the seniors, the elderly frontline workers. But they're trying to get in last minute if there's some extra doses left at the end of the day and snag them, basically. That's what's happening right now. This report was pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly so offensive to know that there are folks doing this. The LA Times, who wrote about this article, actually said that uh, many of the vaccine chasers hail from wealthier parts of the city and descend Mm -hmm. on vaccine distributions in low-income communities. And it's mostly because, I guess, there's some people who won't, like, make it to their appointments, which that could be for, I mean, especially in their low-income communities, they have to go get, you know, they have to work. They have to still kind of do what they have to do to make it to make money so a lot of that maybe child care is not available and so to know that there are folks out there taking advantage of that and waiting outside and securing a vac- uh, a vaccination feels so disgusting and honestly feels just like what white people normally do they take up space where they don't belong and it's it's gross and inappropriate uh, agreed. And and the question is, are these the same people that were talking about how masks were taking their freedoms away, but then they're quick to get the vaccine, right? No, I mean, the, this- the, kick, the kicker is they're the same people who are uh, the same ones who are probably out there protesting in the streets for Black Lives Matter, the same people right? who consider them to be progressive liberals. Those are the same people who are uh, behind the scenes are still problematic, but in front of the scenes, they want you to know how included they are inclusive in everything that they're doing and not understanding their actions and how it's impacting and the role that they play in white supremacy. Yeah. So here's the thing. It's like we can't rely, even though I would love there to be more rules around this, like if there are extra doses, there's a waiting list for those who need to be prioritized. Right. Um, So that would be great. However, we as humans get to create our own ethical decisions and rules for ourselves. We don't need the government to set that in order to make the right choices. And that's the thing here. Right. Like, that's the thing. I think that we wait. We wait for the government and states and our politicians and local officials to create these rules when we ourselves can set that precedent by the way it's clear why this is unethical it's not that simple though i don't it's people aren't going to make the right decision just because they want to be a good person we're past well, that's that the whole meaning in yeah. history i don't think people are even considering themselves to be at that point anymore i think there needs to be some form the dis- this distribution process if you've been following it has been an utter and complete crap show and so the fact that there are there's um the possibility that there's whole 
holes and gaps to allow people to do this. I mean, at first when I was reading this, I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, most of these, like the Moderna vaccine, it expires in six hours. So I think it is cool to give it to folks who are out there kind of waiting and possibly couldn't mm -hmm. get an appointment. But when you're finding out that it's all young, mostly white, kind of coming from there, are these rich folks coming from their neighborhoods trying to take advantage of this, that sounds scammy. And it sounds like they are the last people who are who should honestly be getting this vaccine. They should be waiting to the last like until everyone is vaccinated and then they could come because they have to, there has to be accountability and not having accountability is an issue. And I think that's the reason why we are where we are in this country. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, yeah, I wouldn't want them to throw them away, but the fact that they could be taking um, something that is needed for a certain group of people is sad and tragic. Uh, now the new CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky recently revealed that due to low supply, the vaccine won't be widely available to the general public for several months. Now coming up on the show, what major brands have decided to pass on Super Bowl commercials this year and why? That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, the Victory Institute joins us to discuss the latest anti-trans bill being pushed by Republicans. The question is this time, will it matter? And details on California's reopening plan that got announced today. It is happening. No more stay-at-home orders. So stay tuned for what that means in a moment right here on the show. Are you excited, Ryan, by the way? For what? For, you know, restaurants to be open outside. I'm not going. I'm not going, I'm just, Shira. I'm just asking. I think it's so totally irresponsible. But we'll dive in more. I'm just, I don't think it's that good as everyone's. Like, the excitement is sounds good. I, I just don't. Okay. Well, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Donald Trump's former chief spokesperson, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Remember her? She announced today that she's running for Arkansas governor in 2022. Huckabee Sanders' father, Mike Huckabee, was Arkansas governor from 1996 to 2007. Here's what she posted on her Twitter account. I'm a Christian, a wife, a mom a proud Arkansan. My opponents will do everything in their power to destroy me, but I will not apologize for who I am or who I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for you. I will not retreat. I will not surrender. And I will not bow down to the radical left. Not now, not ever. As governor, I will defend our freedom and lead with heart. All right, watch out. She's coming back. Ew. I mean, honestly, do we need her? I mean, Arkansas can have her, but do we need her? I guess that will be determined very soon, questionably. Now, Budweiser is the latest corporation to back out of advertising during this year's Super Bowl broadcast, choosing instead to join a public awareness campaign for the COVID-19 vaccine. And it's the first time in 37 years now, 30-second ad spots for the Super Bowl reportedly go for about $55 million a piece. Wow. Yeah. And Budweiser will instead send some of that money to the Ad Council's efforts to raise public awareness about the vaccine, as well as a 90-second COVID-themed film called Bigger Picture, narrated by actress Rashida Jones, that's going to air digitally leading up to the Super Bowl, which, of course, is on February 7th on CBS. By the way, other brands that have dipped out, Coke and Pepsi, they also won't be present at the game to this year. 
Now, Twitter has unveiled the birdwatch feature meant to increase its efforts to combat misinformation and disinformation by tapping users in a similar way that Wikipedia does to flag potentially misleading tweets. Mm. Now, this is how it works. I don't know. I feel like it's a bit complicated, but it's a standalone section of Twitter that will at first only be available to a small set of users, largely on a first-come, first-served basis. Priority will not be provided to high-profile people or traditional fact-checkers, but users will have to use an account tied to a real phone number and email address, so they can't be anonymous. Okay. And participants in Birdwatch are able to rate others' notes as a mechanism to prevent bad faith users from gaming the system and falsely labeling true tweets as false or I guess the other way around. Those ratings are then assembled into a birdwatch profile separate of a Twitter profile. And it's kind of like, I guess, Reddit's user rating system. This kind of sounds very complicated. I don't know why they didn't just integrate it into Twitter. Maybe they will do that. This is just an experiment. They hope they can build a community of bird watchers that can eventually help moderate and label tweets in its main product, but will not be immediately labeling, labeling tweets with bird watch suggestions, if that even makes any sense. I just don't understand why priority won't be provided to traditional fact checkers, because this is essentially what that is. And if you just let any old body kind of sign up for it, then they're going to obviously have biases of what they think is true or fact-based or whatever. So why not have just traditional fact-checkers who have been doing this do this? I don't know. It's weird. We should have someone on Twitter to come on the show so we can talk to them about this. We should be interested to hear more. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, well, that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So Riverdale star um, Lily Reinhardt's 2021 is off to a very bizarre start. Uh, It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Now, on Friday... Seventeen magazine issued an apology to the 24-year-old actress after they published an interview by someone pretending to be her. (laughs) Like, literally, here's what they said in a statement after uh, fans called out the magazine for it. Today, we briefly published a story with information we were led to believe was from Lily Reinhardt. However, it was brought to our attention that the person who contacted us was in fact an impersonator and had no connection to the Riverdale, uh, Riverdale star. We want to sincerely apologize to Lily and her fans for this unfortunate situation. I mean, this got so big that even Lily ended up speaking about it on her IG story, saying, for some bizarre reason, someone impersonated me in an interview with Seventeen. Nothing inappropriate was said, but those were not my words and I wanted to address it. How does something like this happen? Like, what? It's Seventeen magazine. This is so strange. Obviously, Seventeen isn't like the highest of journalistic integrity. It's a legacy brand, though. It's still, yes. I mean, how does this happen is true. And I'm surprised it actually hasn't happened as much as it could happen. Because if you think about it, if you're interviewing someone through email or even phone, there's no way to really know unless you see them, right? Yeah, I mean, my thing is normally you you check like the resources that they have, like it's databases to know who's the latest person working on said team. Yeah. I mean, this TV reporter who was like also a writer appeared to be scammed by the impersonator as well. After it was revealed, he would be retracting an article that he wrote for the Daily Express. So there is somebody out there doing illegal things and really catching these folks up. I mean, I think they told them new details about the new season coming up and then also talked about her personal life. It's just weird. It's very, very weird. Um, If you want to know more about that story, hit us up on social at LGT Show and WeAreChannelQ.com.
And of course, I got more Tea Report coming up next hour. Well, uh, next up on the show, the new anti-trans legislation that is making us cringe and the House Republican who introduced it. More details next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A congressional Republican representative, Greg Stube, has introduced a federal bill that would ban transgender girls and women from participating in school sports. The bill threatens federal funds to state and local athletics organizations if they, quote, allow a person whose sex is male to participate in an athletic program or activity that is designated for women or girls. And back with us is Ruben Gonzalez, executive director of the Victory Institute. Thanks so much for joining us again. It's great to be with you. So this isn't surprising, unfortunately. We've heard this from Republicans for, I mean, we covered this all year last year, right? Um, But last Wednesday, Biden did expand protections for LGBTQ people uh, and specifically cited discrimination against transgender people in schools. So doesn't that mean that this Republican has no grounds to stand on with this new bill? Well, unfortunately, it's not surprising at all. Republicans are going to their same old bag of tricks that they think is going to uh, get people afraid and get people riled up against our community. Uh, They scored some cheap political points uh, with demonizing the trans community under the Trump administration, and they're going to continue with that playbook until it stops working for them. Um, I think that we have an ally in the Biden administration, and we also have a major ally in Dr. Rachel Levine, who's been nominated to be the Assistant Secretary of Health. Um, I'm confident that... what the Republicans try to push through or advance, we're going to see the Biden administration come back with some guidance from the Department of Health, from the Department of Education that helps to protect our trans uh, young people and so that they can have a healthy school environment. And that may include sports as well. Yeah, a lot of this is just under the guise, and I think Republicans do this often, that they're saying that they're trying to protect cisgender, like cis women's rights, right? Um, And if you really look into like Greg's like voting record, like history on women, he has voted no against everything that could really help you know, all women at this point. So what is this really about? I just, it's frustrating because I think often we're even seeing that kind of this gaslighting um, when it comes to now where Republicans are saying, well, we shouldn't be going forth in these trials and things like that. We should be doing unity. So is this something that we could just continue to expect from Republicans at the end of the day? It it doesn't really seem like it's going anywhere. Um, I just would love to know your thought about that. It is so frustrating. And unfortunately, we're going to see it at the state level as well. We have uh, Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota. Multiple states are also considering similar bills around transgender young people in particular. I think Republicans are seeing this as a chance, again, to scare their base about who trans people are and about having trans children. And so I think they're going to go for this again until it is defeated or until it doesn't work anymore for their playbook. So we've got to stand up against Republicans demonizing our community. And, you know, this is a time for our LGBTQ community to kind of lock arms and stand together and say, if if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And so all of us across the spectrum, no matter our gender identity, our sexual orientation, have to uh, be ready to fight on behalf of trans people and trans young people, because they're going to be in the crosshairs right now for Republicans. And it's it's, it's a terrible, scary time. And and we've got to fight back. We've got to be ready for it. Yeah, again, that's Ruben Gonzalez, executive director of the Victory Institute. My worry is this is going to be all great while Biden is in office and hopefully, you know, the Democrats are in control of the Senate. But what happens, say, in, you know, four years, right, or or even 10 years, say there's new people in office. Will this continue to be pushed? At what point does this become like absolute like you can't do stuff like this? 
Well, I, I think similarly how we saw during the Bush, the W. Bush administration in the way that they demonized uh, same-sex marriage, that, and that worked then, and that doesn't work now. And we don't see Republicans going after marriage equality in the ways that they did eight years ago. Um, society is moving more quickly. We're learning who trans people are. We have trans people in our lives that we love, that we work with, that are our friends, that are our family, and it's just not going to work anymore. Um, and that's a, so, so important on what allies can do for our uh, for this cause right now as well. You know, I don't think that in four years, our culture is going to be where we are right now on trans issues. Right now, there's a lot of people in the country that don't know any trans people. They don't have any trans friends or family members. Um, all of us are probably lucky enough to have trans friends and family members, but some people don't. And so I, I think it's going to be a couple of years as, as the country catches up and Republicans that want to keep demonizing trans people are left behind on this issue. Hopefully, because we have a Dr. Rachel Levine in office, you know, she's there to help kind of shift the narrative. What about her position and where Joe Biden has put her, especially, you know, with her uh, specifically health is so important about topics like these? Absolutely. Dr. Levine is eminently qualified for this role. She went to Harvard University. She went to Tulane University. She was a pediatrician. She was a secretary of health in Pennsylvania for the last five years, where she was unanimously approved for that position by Republicans and Democrats in their house. And so she is so qualified to lead us right now in our health department. I, I'd say she's probably one of the most qualified people to serve in this role. Um, we know that she is going to bring her perspective as a trans woman to this role. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to have her at that table, making decisions, setting policy, and, and making the conversation on how we should be protecting our young people, including our, our trans young people in schools and their healthcare. Land, before you leave, we have to ask you about what you think about Biden overturning the ban on transgender people serving in the U.S. military. What a great day. I'm happy that Biden has committed to doing this and he and he came through for us in his first week of office. There are uh, thousands of trans people who are serving in the military, serving so bravely, and they absolutely should have the right to do that. And I'm proud to be able to see that Biden came through on his promise for our community uh, so quickly within the first week. It, it makes a big difference and it sends a message that trans people are, are valued in America. That was Ruben Gonzalez, Executive Director of the Victory Institute. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, changes to the COVID-19 restrictions in L.A. County. Are stay-at-home orders finally over? Wylam Weiss, assistant to the mayor of L.A., joins us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. California health officials have ended the state's regional stay-at-home order today, saying the latest projections for intensive care unit capacity have allowed the restrictions to be lifted. Okay, good news. And back with us is the assistant to the mayor of L.A., Wylam Weiss. My love, how are you feeling today? Does it feel like finally we've got a glimmer of hope here? Bad news. <laughs> Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Um, simple term. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, things are looking a bit better than they were before. There is a small light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccines are starting to roll out, albeit there's a lot left to be desired in terms of actual logistics. But it looks like we are starting to enter the beginning of the downward part of the curve and we're flattening the curve. But are we, though? Because it seems like the, uh, the distribution process has been just crappy. There's these rumors that are happening about, you know, them. There are, actually, we did a story about it where, you know, the doses, there's if they're not used in a certain amount of time, they're getting thrown out. It just feels like there's a, still a lot of gaps. And uh, this reopening feels a little bit rushed, like we shouldn't really be doing it just because we see some positive numbers right now 
the the concerns are understandable. Um, right now, we're going based on a projection part more than just the immediate aggregate number. So right now, the four week projection right now shows that ICU capacity will actually increase above 15 percent, which means from the statewide tier system, uh, things are allowed to reopen and things will go back to more of a local control rather than a statewide control. As for the vaccine rollout, that's totally understandable. There is a lot left that needs to be worked on. Uh, truth in point and case in point, really, the, the previous administration really had no plan for the national distribution of vaccines. The hope now is at least with Biden and with pressure on him to really get a national program through and really start getting these vaccines rolled out as quickly as possible and to many arms as possible. But that's going to take the leadership of everybody from the local to the federal level. Yeah. So what does this mean in terms of, I guess, L.A. County right now? Or obviously we have a lot of listeners in Palm Springs. Are people going to be able to eat outside? OK, so actually L.A. County right now is giving its immediate press conference into what is actually next with the statewide lift order. County has decided to actually go with the statewide network system. So we are going to start reopening restaurants by end of week, at least countywide. Um, basically what it is, is we're going to go back to the same program we had before the stay at home order. Those hair salons and nail salons will allowed to be reopened with modifications. Retail will still stay open. Restaurants will be outdoors only. Wineries and breweries that serve food will be allowed to open, but for outdoor only. So everything has to be outside. That's the way it works. But we'll basically go back to what it was in October before the stay at home order. Is this an economic decision? A, a lot of it actually is a large of it is an economic decision. The simple fact is, is that people are really hurting right now and businesses really don't have any support. But a lot of it also simply is the science shows that the stay-at-home order doesn't really work in terms of restaurants and bars because the numbers really don't indicate that these are the highest risk levels for getting coronavirus. A lot of the numbers right now seem to indicate the spread comes from these house parties and family gatherings and some of that, I think, also is the fact that because the holiday season is over, the gatherings really have pulled back a lot, which is beginning to show in the numbers. The numbers are beginning to actually go down, not up. Child Labor Day is right around the corner. <laughs> Memorial Day. Oh, my God. Day. Already? <laughs> Again, we're, t we're talking to the assistant of the mayor of L.A., Wylam Weiss. Uh, but you said people are getting tickets. Is this is what what's going to happen in the future? If you do have a house party or a gathering, will people need to be able to uh, have to pay up or get a strike of some sort? Like, what's going to happen to hold people accountable? Well, L.A. County still has to work out the logistics because they're morally in charge when it comes to the health regulations, at least when it comes to house parties. There have been significant crackdowns, though, on these underground parties. Uh, Let me, if you've seen on the news, like with uh, ABC7, like downtown on these abandoned buildings where they're having these sort of raised. These crackdowns are essential and are becoming very much enforced because these are what they call super spreader events. In fact, last weekend, they arrested over 150 people because of a giant underground rave going on in downtown Los Angeles. So this is no joke. We do not want underground parties. Still don't want people having house parties, housewarming gifts, whatever. The idea is if you can stay at home, please just stay at home and self-isolate when you can. We understand that things are very difficult right now. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. We're just asking for a tad bit more patience. And I know you're not a scientist or an epidemiologist or any of those ologists, but do you think we are getting closer to uh, the end of this, whatever that may be when it comes to actually opening up, maybe going back to work. How far are we from that moment? 
I mean, right right now, obviously, if we're looking at just from the vaccination standpoint, uh, that means that, yeah, we actually have a long way to go. But I am I'm more inclined to and so is the Garcetti administration to follow more of the Fauci ideology, which is if we can get these vaccines rolling out and rolling out real fast now that we have some kind of logistics coming in. I think really by end of 2021, we could start really saying that we have really gotten COVID under control and we can start having some form of normality again. But this also requires not just vaccines. We need people to wear masks outside at all times, not just the vaccine. You do your part. And I promise you, we can all promise you with the vaccines and the masks, we can start getting back to some kind of normality by end of 2021. That was Wylam Weiss, the assistant to the mayor of L.A. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Wow. End of 2021, Ryan. There you go. There you have now, it. <laughs> coming up, Dr. Burks is speaking out about what it really was like behind the scenes working for Trump and her biggest regret. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks are stepping out of Trump's shadow, sharing lots of feelings about their time with the former president, with the press and the public. None of this is too surprising. It's like they were prisoners. They were finally let free. Uh, but Trump's COVID-19 task force coordinator, Dr. Burks, gave an in-depth interview to CBS News's Face the Nation. Sunday, she talked about how the data she gave wasn't the same with data that Trump would share with the press. I know that someone or someone out there or someone inside was creating a parallel set of data and graphics that were shown to the president. I know what I sent up and I know that what was in his hands was different from that. Who was doing that? To this day, I don't know. Now, like the stuff that she shared was just like, oh my God, it, it kind of makes me feel like we're all on the same page with thinking that it was a mess behind the scenes. Um, yeah, I think I have a different take. So I filled in, if you caught me this morning on the Morning Beach show, and yes. we briefly touched on this. Um, I am actually quite upset with Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci um, because I thought this news and these like PR kind of media hits that they're doing right now just feel so tone deaf in the sense of like they're revealing all of the craziness that went on behind the scenes, but instead they decided to reveal it now instead of in the moment. And we're already at a point where, you know, almost a half a million folks have died in this country because they didn't want to speak up and talk about the nonsense that was going on and the people, you know, the president just not listening. It's just like no one wanted to speak up and it just feels so irresponsible that I honestly think they should be stepping down in a sense. Like not even, I don't, I don't know if I feel that way about Dr. Fauci, but I sure fit for real feel that way about uh, Dr. Deborah Burks because the way yep. she detailed that it's just what is that supposed to make me feel like excited? Was that supposed to make the the families who who lost people excited to know that they were right the entire time? It's just like no. Yeah, so th- I was about to get to that, and I'm happy you brought that up. I feel like Fauci did speak out a lot throughout that this whole ordeal. Uh, he did put himself out there. He did create, uh, you know, distance between him and the president because he was speaking out about these things. I do think her now talking about all of this, it's like, yeah, too little, too late. I mean, here's what she says about her biggest regret while she was working with the administration. I always feel like I could have done more, been more outspoken. Um, maybe been more outspoken publicly, publicly. I didn't know all the consequences of all of these issues. 
And this is where it gets strange. Like she didn't know the consequences of her actions. I mean, it was literally, it was coming out in real time. The consequences of her actions was being revealed like as it was all happening. But how do you not know that? I, I still think that's a cop out. How do you not know yeah. the actual consequences when you know that this is a deadly virus, people are, are going to die if things are going to be taken care of. And you're literally talking about, oh, you would give you know Donald Trump the actual data and then someone else would come up and he would end up having some other data that you had never seen. Why were you not speaking? up you have the pulpit you have the 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 moment you're literally in sitting in front of all of those press folks and you don't want to say one thing i'm sorry they this is the reason why people don't believe science this exact reason because when you do have the opportunity to speak up and talk about the things that are happening it's a little bit too late and now you're doing it so you can get your name all over the press i'm not a fan yeah, I, I think it's more, yeah, and the trust of individuals specifically from the government and our politicians or whoever works with them. And it's like, if those people working with them are just being yes people, right? Or are they actually sharing what is needed with the public? And once again, I, I it's a bit embarrassing that she appeared on the show thinking like, oh, she's going to be the, the good one, right? The angel here when she didn't make the right decisions. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, I want to give her some grace just a little bit just of to be course, like, yeah, yeah, thanks for doing what you did to help us get to the point where we are till we know everything that we know. But when you saw those crazy things, like it's just, this is what I'm thinking about the entire Trump administration. So many people are going to come out with books talking about all the craziness that went down behind the scenes. But my question is, why didn't you speak up when you had the chance? When you had the mic, why didn't you use it? Why didn't you use your power? And it's something that might haunt their lives for a long time. I hope as it well. does. Now, coming up on the show, more on Biden's Buy American plan and how that could help boost the economy. That's next on What's Trending this hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. So, why therapist burnout is worse than ever before and what that means for all of us, right? We're all burnt out. What happens then? We can't mm -hmm. even rely on our poor therapists. I feel so bad for them. Uh, plus, the word that Biden is taking out of immigration law and why that is so important and finally it's happening. Uh, a lot of people have been fighting for this, so we're going to be giving you more details on that in a bit. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. President Joe Biden signed an executive order today aimed at promoting the Buy American agenda he campaigned on last year. It seeks to bolster U.S. manufacturing. The president added that as part of this executive order, the federal government will also move to replace its fleet of vehicles with American-made electric cars over time. Okay. All right. I know that's something you're super excited about. I'm down. So I'm going to sign this executive order, but let me conclude again by saying, folks, this is one of the cases where business, labor, Wall Street, Main Street, liberal, conservative economists know we have to act now, not only to help people who are in need now, but to allow us to be in a competitive position worldwide and be the leader of the world economy in the next year and two and three and going forward. Now, the executive order directs agencies to strengthen requirements about purchasing products and services from U.S. workers and businesses. It also cuts some red tape and creates a position in the Office of Management and Budget responsible for enforcing the directive. 
I think this is really important right now, considering everyone, well, the Republicans, those on the right, keep saying that he's taking jobs away from Americans. So he's going to really have to enforce this focus on buying American products and manufacturing in America. It is long past time to have a woman lead the U.S. Treasury Department. Chair Yellen's got my full support. That was Senator Ron Wyden, who pledged to support for Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen. She was later confirmed by lawmakers today, making her the first woman in American history to hold the position. As head of the Treasury, she'll be tasked to lead President Biden's $1.9 trillion American rescue plan through Congress and overseeing its execution. The plan includes $1,400 stimulus checks, expanded unemployment benefits, and increased funding for COVID-19 vaccinations and testing. So go, Janet Yellen. This is huge. Love it. Now, a victory for advocates of abortion rights today as the Supreme Court dismissed lower court rulings that had upheld a Texas order banning nearly all abortions in the state during the coronavirus pandemic. Governor Greg Abbott ordered a halt to non-essential medical procedures in late March to conserve hospital resources and personnel, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE. Now, Governor Greg Abbott ordered a halt to non-essential medical procedures in late March to conserve hospital resources and personal protective equipment. Attorney General Ken Paxton then said the order applied to any type of abortions, including medication abortions that do not involve surgery. In a statement, Planned Parenthood said that Abbott's order was, quote, a transparent attempt to chip away at access to reproductive health care by exploiting a public health crisis. And it was therefore important we took this procedure step to make sure bad case law was wiped from the books. So uh, this is another early Yaz Queen. Great news today. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So which celebrity is saying that she won't do male-directed sex scenes moving forward? It is time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So Kira Knightley, she is done with dude-directed sex scenes. In a new podcast interview, Akira said that she, um, basically she said, I don't have an absolute ban, but I kind of do with men. Uh, she was talking about agreeing to sex scenes directed by men. She says, it's partly about vanity and it's also the male gaze. I feel very uncomfortable now trying to portray the male gaze, saying that there's times where I go, yeah, I complete, completely see where this sex would be really good in this film. And you basically just need someone to look hot. But now, while there are certain movie narratives she would be open to performing more sexual scenes for, she says it would have to be with a female director, which honestly, you wouldn't have heard actresses doing this like 15, 20 years ago, like demanding that mm -hmm. they don't do a sex scene with the guy. Yeah, it's going to change things. What if there is, this is the question, an amazing movie, right? That you believe in the art, you believe in the script and it happens to be a male director and it makes sense for the scene. Are you just going to say no? Is she going to uh, uphold this this commitment? I think she is going to make certain, you know, caveats. Uh, she did say, if I was making a story that was about the journey, about that journey of motherhood and body acceptance, I feel like I'm sorry, but that would have to be with a female filmmaker. I don't want it to be these uh, those horrible sex scenes where you, you're all greased up and everybody is grunting. I'm not interested in doing that. So I think she's had some obviously bad experiences with mm -hmm. some male directors. And if I was a male that had directed her at some point, I would be looking at myself and seeing, oh, did I contribute to this, you know? 
Um, but I do think that she will do it if she feels safe. And I think that's really the bigger picture yeah. here is wanting to feel safe and not feel like an object. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. That's your tea report. I, w- I won't tell you about the one time I did uh, almost a topless scene when I was younger in an MTV series. So we can talk about that another time. The fact that you were down. even in that position for that to happen is such a shame. I was moment. young. I, it's <laughs> It was for undressed, okay? It was, you know, that, uh, was it like the drama soap opera type of thing on MTV? We can can tell that story another time. That's a story time. Coming up on the show, we're talking about the other pandemic mental health crisis happening. Therapist burnout and what needs to be done to support them. We'll be back in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A recent Gallup poll showed Americans' assessment of their own mental health is worse than it has been at any point in the last two decades. Okay, and in the midst of all this, there's a shortage of mental health providers. So while there's increased demand, which is great, the load on these providers is more than ever before, which brings up another crisis not many people are talking about, and that's therapist burnout. And joining us is one of our favorites, Dr. Alfie, a psychologist and founder of the Acoma Project and host of the Couched in Color podcast. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Of course. Always, always. Hi, hi, hi. So how real is this for you? I don't even know how you do it. You have your social media, your shows, you, a nonprofit, you're a therapist. I mean, how do you deal with this? Are you burnt out? Uh, No. And I'll tell you the only reason I'm not burnt out. I don't feel burnt out because I make it a priority to always center my mental health. So I do this thing where I like I started putting these mantras for marginalized people, right? I have this M3s, mindful mantras, mental health mantras for marginalized people. And I, that's really important to me. Uh, mindfulness, meditation, taking care of myself and always centering my mental health. That's the only reason I would say I'm probably not feeling burnout. And one, congratulations on that. Yeah. Because I can't imagine, um, and me and my therapist even have kind of talked candidly about how she's like stopped taking clients and things like that, just because she uses that as an example for me because I got yep. issues. But um, I think what's interesting is this idea of not even really thinking about where a therapist kind of gets their mental health, like self-care in, or if they have yep. a therapist, like what does that really yep. look like in the chain of taking on and being somewhat of an empath? and taking so much energy in, how do you navigate that space? Sure, sure. So for full disclosure, um, I slowly started ratcheting down my practice over the course of the last 18 months. That has a lot to do with this. So my colleagues who are full-time private practice, full-time clinical practice, or even half-time clinical practice, um, I know that they're struggling. A lot of Mm -hmm. them are struggling, particularly those who come from marginalized populations, because not only are you working with people who are having these experiences, but you yourself are engaging in what we call parallel process. You're going to do the same thing out there in the world. And so everything that your therapist shared with you, I think is right on the money. So I don't want to minimize or belittle anything that people who are doing this work are doing. It's really critical, really important. It's just a lot. They, They have a lot on their plates and it's heavy. Yeah. And Dr. Alfie, is this different than we've seen in the past? I mean, is this like a new level? Yes. And and I would say it's a new level, again, particularly for BIPOC and marginalized folks, because so many more people are willing publicly without getting shamed. Right. Used to be 20, 30 years ago, you would talk about some of these same issues about racism, discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, and people would just like, oh, no, 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 no. Right. And so now we're in a place where people can openly express those things. But, you know, when you bring it up and bring it out, you got to process it. You got to deal with it. And so I think it's different in this day and age because we are bombarded with so much 
um, so many triggers, so much stuff that triggers us personally as providers and so much stuff that's triggering the people that we work with. So I would say 100 percent. It's a very different time. And one more thing. Back the last time I can remember something being this big was civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement, there was no social media. And it was a whole lot of BIPOC folks who were never going to therapy, right? And so it's just a very different, sort of like a perfect storm of a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of stress. Again, we're talking to psychologist Dr. Alfie right now about therapist burnout. But I think what's really key here is how therapy has pivoted and shifted, right? It, I wonder would it have been the same response if it was in person versus now being stuck behind a computer screen for hours on hours and not really adjusting to that, right? I think we're still all kind of adjusting. So how much do you think that plays into the burnoutness of from having patients in front of you and kind of having a right. cutoff and, and time right. to step away? Right, right. So I think some people, I will say for those, there's some folks out there who are really good about still trying to keep those boundaries and still trying to keep that structure, even though they're sitting in front of a computer. The downside is some folks are not doing that, number one. And number two, even if you are doing that, guess what you're doing between patients? Electronic medical records. So you're still sitting in front of the computer, typing in notes, right? Billing, all that kind of stuff on the phone, sitting in front of the computer, dealing with insurance companies or, you know, self-pay or however you manage it. And so people don't get a break. And even all you're socializing now is also through the computer. So even when you finish with therapy for the day, you gonna have a coffee break, you're going to have a glass of wine, you're still staring at a computer screen. So I think it's um, just it, you just don't get a break. And it's just heavy and it's a lot on these providers right now. So yeah, how can we be there for the therapists in our lives, whether it be someone in our family, a friend, or our own therapist? I mean, I don't know if that's even possible. I mean, I but pay is there them. something? Is there I something pay that, them. That's that exactly are, when I spend my money for that hour. That's payment. I'm paying for that. I understand. I understand. I have empathy for folks. But I paid them. So that is what I can do. <laughs> but it's like, what do you, Dr. Alvia, someone in the industry, and like, obviously, you're seeing your friends struggle. Like, what can people, the public do for mental health providers right now? One thing the public can do is do it exactly what you two are doing right now, which is having the conversation. So I think part of it is just sort of out there in the ether. If you're on social media, get somebody on IGTV to talk about therapist burnout. If you're on Twitter, do something on Twitter where you're talking about therapist burnout. Continue to bring up the conversation because I think uh, for a lot of providers, people want to, you know my thing, you want to feel seen, valued, and heard. And I think a lot of times this stuff kind of happens in a vacuum or happens in the back or outside of people's line of sight. And they're not thinking about it. So that's the main thing is continue to have the conversation. And then I think the only thing you can do as a patient or a client is just say, I am thinking about you. I know mm. that this is heavy. Don't try to be their therapist, but just say, I just want you to know that you're on my mind. And I know this must this might be very hard for you right now. And I'm thinking of you. Yeah. You know, when my therapist, if she wants to change something last minute, or she asks me if I'm flexible one day here and there, I always kind of say yes or make it work because I, I, I understand that pro there's probably something going on behind the scenes, right? Yes. So even that can make a difference. Dr. Right. Alfie, thank you so much for being here. Always. My pleasure. I love you all. Oh, we love you. Dr. Alfie is again a psychologist, founder of the Acoma Project and host of the Couched in Color podcast. Now coming up on the show, Biden is taking out a highly controversial word from immigration laws. We discuss what that is and its impact next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. 
Okay, we got two good ones today. Uh, sure let's start did. with Brendan Cohen. He came out when he was a senior at Madison, Wisconsin High School. At the time, after hearing then Vice President Biden, this is like in 2012, talking about supporting marriage equality on Meet the Press. Well, Cohen is now 26. And guess what? He officially started as the social media manager for now President Biden. So he went from being a kid in high school, finally coming to terms with who he was, and now he's working for Biden. I mean, this is pretty incredible. And I think also one of those moments where they say, don't meet your idol. But guess what? It turned out really, really good for Brandon. Yeah, he said in high school, as I was coming to terms with the fact that I was a gay man, I realized pretty early on that one political party supported my rights and the other didn't. It was the initial spark that got me to start paying attention and got me involved. And then he set sights on working for a presidential campaign. Uh, he applied as soon as Biden declared candidacy and he basically got the gig. He says it was honestly a dream come true. He worked uh, throughout the election and now he's there. So congrats to Brendan Cohen. What an inspirational story. Now, oh, this is uh, this is very exciting. This video has been going viral, being shared everywhere. I got chills just watching it. UCLA gymnast Nia Dennis did a floor routine performance celebrating black culture over the weekend, and the internet is freaking out. Um, and we're playing some of that music behind, you know, behind us right now. But she mixed in a lot of different songs during the competition in Los Angeles. It starts with Kendrick Lamar's Humble. The rest of her routine features a mashup of music by a number of amazing black artists from Missy Elliott, Soldier Boy and Tupac. What did you think, Ryan? Were you blown away? Yes, honestly, UCLA always has a star on their team. They're like a really amazing team. I feel like they always have these viral videos of moments, especially of black girls who are just slaying it. And so, yeah, thank you for bringing to everyone's attention this story because I think she's incredible. Oh, yeah. And she earned a score of 9.950 out of a possible 10. Uh, so basically it was like a Perfect. hit in terms of, yes, electric floor exercise and dance specifically. No one knows uh, what that means. Yeah, I don't know if you're wondering. And her routine helped UCLA win over Arizona State University. She also won a vault event earlier in Saturday's competition. She posted the clip. And of course, everyone was freaking out, including Olympic champion gymnast Simone Biles, who tweeted, do the damn thing, girl. This is so fun to watch. Keep killing it. And that does it for our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Now we are back tomorrow. It's a new week. We're going to be talking about how the Biden administration can save the Postal Service. I wonder how they're going to do that. Plus, how to deal with the anger you feel over people ignoring COVID-19. That and more on tomorrow's show. And of course, we're honoring the late Kobe Bryant. If you miss any of our shows, you can catch up on everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Stick around for Loveline, where Dr. Chris right after this will be covering depression myths. Have a great night. Bye, y'all.